Welcome to the Resurrection Church podcast. This is the first episode of a weekly series where we discuss readings of a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan. I'm AJ Molnix, and I'm here with my two friends, Aaron Downs and Matthew Mewdman. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. As I've been researching for this podcast series, uh, a verse that stuck out to me is uh, Psalm 111, verse 2. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. And I think that's the the goal of this podcast, to study the Bible, read through it, so that we can delight in God and his truth. We've got a lot to discuss today. Let's jump right into Genesis. All right. Perhaps we should should talk a bit about um, the background, who wrote Genesis. Aaron, is there some stuff that we should be thinking about when we read Genesis? Yeah, I think so. So we're we're talking about the first week of the Everyday with Jesus Bible reading plan on the Christian Standard Bible website. And that means in week one, we read Genesis 1 through Genesis 15, verse 6. And there are a number of interpretive issues that we have to deal with in those sections. And one of them, of course, as you mentioned, is who wrote this? And I think we can say that Moses wrote Genesis and really the whole Pentateuch. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And obviously there were people who edited these documents. Uh, There are comments about Moses's burial that he obviously couldn't have written. Um, There are changes to place names and other things. So we understand that there were editors along the way, but the New Testament authors talked about these as the books of Moses. And I think that we we can say... Moses is the primary author, and uh, that doesn't mean that he came up with all of this on his own. He used sources. It it would make sense to say that, and I think as we read through the Pentateuch, we'll see various points where um, he's drawing on other information. That's pretty clear. Obviously, Moses was raised in a house of royalty, and so he was well-educated, and so he would have had the capacity to do uh, a really careful documentation and writing. So I I would say Moses wrote this. We don't know when along the stages of Moses's life and ministry that all of these things came together. Um, It's hard to imagine when he would have time to write, but I suppose wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, there would be some time there. Um, But I, I think it's good for us to affirm mosaic authorship while recognizing editorial work. Matthew, why don't you read Genesis 1-1, and talk about what's so important about that opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is very important. I'm not sure what you want me to say about that, but it is. I mean, I guess that's that's right there. God created everything. Yeah, I saw someone on the Twitter today tweet something out. It said something like this. When we read Genesis, we need to remember that it wasn't written to people who didn't believe in a God, but to people who believed in 10,000 gods. So the the claim of one God who created all things is revolutionary, but maybe not in the same way as it was for the people Moses was talking to, where he's redirecting them perhaps from thinking of the Egyptian creation accounts, and he's giving them the the true story of the world. In the original language, would the use of God, would it have been, I guess, more clear or emphasized, like in in the beginning, the God or the only one God created 
the heavens and the earth, or is there not a distinction in that language? Yeah, it's complicated because there are obviously different names for God that are used, but then the word Elohim, which is translated God, um, is in the plural. It could be God or gods, and sometimes it has Ha Elohim, the gods, or the God, um, but you don't necessarily translate it that way. Um, sometimes it shows up with without that. So it's I, I don't know that there's a point to be made from that, but mm-hmm. probably in some Bible translations, you'll see a little asterisk with a little note or the God or something like that. Genesis one twenty six, we see that God said, let us make man in our image. Did Moses have a conception of the Trinity when he was writing this passage? You're talking about on day six, the latter half, um, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule. And then it goes on in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And I was recently reading an article about this, and there, there are like six positions that were taken And I think there are two plausible ones. One is that it's a reference to a plurality within the unity of God. In in Genesis 1, it talks about the spirit of God that was hovering over the water. So perhaps it's a cluing in to, to the reality of God is a plurality. It's hard to say, though. The other option would be that it's a reference to Um, what the ancient Near Eastern world thought of as the divine council. So God would have spoken to the divine council, uh, these beings. If you think in the book of Job, where the divine council is assembled before him and even the adversary is there. So, So he would be speaking to them, but then the point would be in the next verse, he doesn't make man in their image. He makes man in his image. So it's like he disenfranchises the God and says... Humanity is mine and will reflect me, not you. It does seem to at least break a pattern that we've seen so far where God is saying, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be water. But then when he makes man, it changes. Yeah, and some people will will call this a a plural of of deliberation, self-deliberation or something like that. But if you read through Genesis, and as we did in in our text, we, we note that God says something like this in this point. He says something like this is right before he exiles Adam and Eve from the garden because he said, you know, they'll eat and they'll become like one, or they've become like one of us. And then once again at the Tower of Babylon, um, he goes down and uh, he says some, he, there, there's that plural reference, first person plural reference again. So, so some people theorize whenever humanity is warring against God or, or pursuing deity, that's the theme where this shows up. But again, it's disputed. I don't know what to say, but certainly not. it's not a Trinitarian statement in the way that we would, we would maybe talk about it. Yeah, I had the same question. I wrote that down. How did Moses know it was let us and our image? I didn't know how that worked, so that helps at least. Good. Chapter 2, we see almost a a repetition of chapter 1. You know, I'm reading through and then starts over again. What's Moses trying to do here with chapter 2? We're we're seeing the story again, but with just some different details. Again, this is disputed, right? Um, It's hard to say. And I've gone back and forth on this. Critical scholars will say there were two different authors and an editor 
has put these two stories together in their conflicting stories about creation. I don't know that that's correct. Actually, I, I would argue that's incorrect. Right now, there are several good conservative theories about what's going on here. I think probably what's going on here is in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where humanity is created, you're getting this wide angle panoramic view. And that's one way of talking about human creation. And then in chapter two, you're getting like the narrow close up picture in a retelling of that day six in different details, if you want to think about it that way. So, so it's kind of like the close-up and personal edition of what we read in Genesis 1. More than that, though, you have the introduction of not just God creating, but the Lord God creating, or Yahweh Elohim, and using that covenantal name for God. And so here, you start to pick up on God relating to humanity in terms of blessing giving responsibility to them. Uh, there's covenant curses potentially that we might see that with this curse of death for violating the obligations of the relationship. So we start to see a bit more of the covenantal interaction between God and humanity. Do you know, is it discussed much um, as far as like a location for the Garden of Eden? Like do people kind of know current day roughly where it would have been? I mean, I know they list the rivers, but maybe the rivers have changed since the flood. People speculate about that sort of thing, and I have zero interest in that. Oh, I have loads of interest in that. Okay, so you're the wrong guy to ask. I'd be the wrong guy to ask because I, I don't think that there's any reason for us to try to locate something like this, locate the original Garden of Eden. A lot of people will suggest Israel is where that Garden of Eden was. People have a lot of different theories about where these things are, but I just have no interest in it because I, I don't think that it's fruitful. But I, I, I don't think it's wrong for people to be interested in, in locating that place. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I wouldn't argue that it's fruitful. I just find it interesting because it's like it was somewhere on Earth. And we're still on Earth. It's the same Earth, like more or less. So. Yeah, it would be pretty cool if we found a cherubim with a flaming well, well, sword right. wandering around the Middle East or something. You know, you know garden, I think a garden. I think that individual, that creature, uh, probably is no longer on right. the planet. He dipped out after the flood. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. that's other probably unfruitful things that I wondered was okay. You've got the guy guarding the garden or the tree or whatever it was, so they couldn't get back. It's like. You know, how long How long did he have to stay there? How long was it before the garden kind of, you know, decayed into normal landscape, essentially? I don't know. That stuff's just interesting to me. Yeah, and I think those are interesting, but they're also potentially distracting from what the author is actually trying to communicate. Uh, because if we read that text in the, the primary questions that we have are about the location of the garden, instead of attending to the features in realizing that this is probably a temple's garden, and so there's something being said about the way that God would dwell with humanity, um, and even as we compare this to ancient Near Eastern writing, where idols were made and placed in, in gardens of the gods and in the temples, and, and you see humans who are representative of the God, um, there, there are other things that we should be thinking about primarily, um, including uh, the, paying attention to the responsibilities that are, giving, that are given to the man and the woman, 
And I think the man in particular is instructed to work and to guard the garden, which then indicates that things are not perfect. So even though things are good and everything is good, that doesn't mean it's beyond improvement. And that doesn't mean that there are no threats to its goodness. And then as we trace that out, as we get to the end of chapter three, the man is commissioned to work the ground. And now the cherubim is commissioned to guard the garden. And so there's been a role that's been taken away from humanity. So these are the kind of details I think we should pay attention to and allow to guide our questions as we read these texts. I'll try to stay on topic in that way. But that's not a rebuke to you, Matthew. I think those are I those are interesting rebuked, questions. But that's okay. Oh well, I hope you know it's uh, it's not bad to ask those questions okay. as long as you're asking the other ones too. Okay. Well, and that's why we have the study Bibles that we referenced in our first episode, and and that's why we can talk about these things because otherwise it it might just go unnoticed. Yeah. So watch over it that taken away because he let the snake in. So. Yeah, we, we would it. think that he has a responsibility to guard the garden against threats to the garden's safety and security, and a talking serpent seems like a good candidate to be a threat. Chapter 3, we see the serpent tempting Eve and the fall of man. We do have one of the most important verses in chapter 3, but before we get there, what are some important patterns and images that we see in chapter 3 that are, that are going to be important for reading the rest of the Bible? You have the the woman in the garden, the man apparently is there as well, and the serpent speaks to them, and the serpent calls into question the Lord's authority and his truthfulness and his goodness. And that sparks a whole conversation, and there's a twisting of half-truths. You know, there's a kernel of truth in everything that the serpent says. It, it's related to the subject matter, but it's not the truth. And then the woman in verse 6 saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for attaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And over and over again throughout the Pentateuch, there will be individuals who see that something is good. They look at it and they take it. And whether that's talking about Pharaoh looking at Abraham's wife, Sarah, seeing that she's beautiful, you know, pleasant to the eyes, and then he takes her. There, there are these instances throughout the rest of Genesis where this language is repeated over and over again. More than that, though, I would say that there's a, there's a broken relationship between God and humanity that's introduced here, and the result of that is a broken relationship between humans. Um, so where humanity fails to live in faithfulness and steadfast love towards God— When humanity is confronted, Adam fails to repent and confess his wrongdoing, and instead he blames his human partner when the last words that he spoke about her was, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, So in one instance, he's praising God for her, and then the very next words about her are blaming her for giving him of the fruit. So I think we start to see a brokenness in relationship between God and humans that are introduced here for the first time. Don't want to blame other people for your failures. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, we see the broken relationship. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3, uh, we see a promise. We see possibly the most important verse in the Bible, a theme of salvation that we can trace throughout the whole Bible all the way to Revelation. Matthew, would you like to read Genesis 3.15? 
I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Yeah, like you mentioned, AJ, this is an important verse. And I recently learned that in the Latin translation of the Bible, and I don't know if this is true in in Catholic English Bibles or not, but it says that she will strike your head and you will strike her heel. And so one of my favorite paintings is of Eve and Mary coming together with Mary's foot on on the head of the serpent. And I think that's where this is derived from, is this idea that it will be the Eve who does this, or typologically Mary in place of Eve. And I still like that pl- that painting anyway, because I think we emphasize Mary is pregnant in that picture, and there is a typological correspondence there and a fulfilling of this verse. But you're right, this idea of uh, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, that appears over and over again. I think the next time it shows up is with Cain and sin, where sin is crouching at the door, and he needs to rule over it. He ought to do what Adam failed to do in the garden. So Cain is a type of Adam, But then, as we'll see, Cain fails. But then going beyond that, I think you have other people like Jacob and Esau, where some of the same imagery is there, even earlier than that. I think Ishmael and Isaac, you have some pictures there. Uh, But then when Israel is in Egypt, they're under the hard rule of Pharaoh, who has the serpent on his head, There's a snake up there. Perhaps there's some imagery there. Uh, But then going into the New Testament, John the Baptist tells the Pharisees and Sadducees, you are a brood of vipers. Don't say that you're sons of Abraham. And throughout, even in in Revelation, earlier than that, Romans 16, 10, I believe, uh, where Paul writes that he's confident that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's this interweaving where Satan becomes identified with the serpent pretty clearly throughout the Bible. Some people call this the first mention of the gospel. You brought up Cain and Abel. I was wondering about Cain's sacrifice and why it wasn't accepted. I think his his sacrifice isn't accepted just because he has he has a bad heart and he just has too much unrepented for sin. I don't think it was a matter of low quality vegetables or something that he brought. I mean, maybe they were low quality because he didn't care because he had a bad heart. But that that's that was kind of my first reaction to it was you know, because God says sin is crouching at the door, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. You know, it sounds like he's not ruling over some kind of sin in his life and it just kind of overall as a person, there's just a lot of sin there that God's not going to put up with. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I think we could say that Cain obviously had a sinful heart and Abel did too. We all have sinful hearts, I think we can say. The author just doesn't outline the particulars of why God did not look favorably upon Cain's sacrifice. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. I think there are many times when things that we do just seem like they don't turn out or the Lord is not blessing the effort and work that we're doing, and we might not be able to explain why in the same way that perhaps Cain wasn't able to explain why. And so instead of looking backward and trying to unravel everything that happened, Instead, we need to hear the word of the Lord and look forward and recognize that as we go forward, we need to fight sin, rule over it, and offer worship to the Lord instead of trying to unwind everything and figure out why things aren't right. I think instead, we just need to hear the word of the Lord and obey. Here's my thought about that. I understand what you're saying. I think that's a good point. As far as Cain goes, it's like 
you know, he gets real mad right away. Mm-hmm. Then basically his next reaction is murder brother. To me, that that's like a big escalation if it's like, well, I'm a great guy. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. How come my sacrifice isn't getting offered? You know what? I'm going to lose it and kill my brother. Like, I don't know. To me, that feels like he was already kind of hostile or he had a lot of issues already to, you know, to just often kill his brother. God's like, hey, here's your opportunity. Sin, you know, is crouching at the door. It's desires for you must rule over it. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to kill my brother in the field later today or tomorrow or whatever. Yeah, he does the exact opposite of what the Lord instructs him to do. And here we see a mirror image of Adam, who instead of ruling over the garden and guarding it and protecting it, um, allowed uh, the serpent to have his way in the garden. Well, now Cain is not exercising a right kind of dominion, which is exercising dominion over sin. Instead, he turns that on his brother and crushes his brother. So I, I don't know that the author gives us enough of a backstory to know what kind of person Cain was leading up to this. We don't know how old these individuals are. We don't know much about them at all. But what we do know is that this person did not respond to the Lord correctly. Again, I think he probably had some problems leading up to this, uh, but ultimately, as he hears the word of the Lord, he does the opposite. And in both cases, with Adam and Eve and with Cain, God was merciful to them in their sin. In the case of Cain, he puts a mark on him, so when people find him, they won't be like, oh, that's Cain who killed his brother, let's kill him. Yeah, now, I, I would want to point out, though, that when God responded to Adam and Eve, he did not curse either of them. He cursed the ground that Adam would work. But in this case, in Genesis 4:11, God says, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground. So I think there is an escalation of punishment, even as mercy is shown once again, right? The death penalty was given to Adam. He would surely die. Cain will receive that as well, but not from the hands of other people. Um, God God will protect him. So even there, you're right, there's another showing of mercy, but there's also an escalation of judgment. Just kind of going back real quick to the whole, um, you know, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. Is there any kind of, I guess, themes or precedent in other places in the Bible or in the Old Testament where there were situations or commonalities where it's like, oh, the, in this situation, the sacrifice wasn't accepted. It was, you know, it was rejected by God. Or I guess instances or patterns where people's sacrifices were accepted. Is there anything to kind of be gleaned from that, or not really? That's a good question. I don't know that I have a list of any outside of obvious distinctions. Where like, is it Elijah in the prophets of Baal that they're offering to different gods? Maybe the closest parallels that I could think of, at least in Genesis, are where you have someone with multiple wives, and one is bearing many children, and the other is not, and they're both praying to the Lord, and it seems that the Lord is hearing one's prayer and not the other's. But people making sacrifices where one's accepted and one is rejected, nothing's coming to my mind, though they may exist. We do see an escalation of sin continue on the earth. There's an interesting verse about the Nephilim who were on the earth in those days, the sons of God. You're looking at me like you got a question here. Well, uh, kind of questions. That was interesting because I I don't know that I really read that before. And I'm like, what is this? What is one? What does this word mean? So I had to look it up and I did 
I looked into it a little bit because I found that very interesting. And again, maybe it, it's not the most fruitful digging, or maybe I'm missing parts of the passage, but that was interesting. Aaron, what all do you know about I'm that? I'm sure it's not debated at all. Because yeah. I've got my thoughts. <laughs> it, I have my stance on the Nephilim or whatever they are. Yeah, once again, it's it's very debated. And let's read verse 4. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So there are two questions of identity here. Who are the Nephilim and who are the sons of God? And are they the same people or not? More than that, though, we might ask, are the Nephilim the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? And I I don't have good answers for there because the, the Nephilim were on the earth before the flood and afterward. And so some people have speculated that these are just strong, powerful individuals who um, appear throughout the scriptures uh, who are just extra strong, the mighty men of old, these sorts of individuals. It's hard to say. I don't have a strong opinion on this. Um, There's a man named Peter Gentry who has a, a video on this on YouTube. If you just Google Gentry Nephilim or search that on YouTube, he has about a 20 minute talk on this. I right now am inclined to say that these sons of God are angelic beings who have failed to um, maintain their faithfulness to the Lord, and they are pursuing wickedness with humanity. And perhaps the Nephilim are their offspring, but I I don't have a strong opinion on this. That's, I think, more or less what I thought from what I looked into it was that they were fallen angels that, yeah, decided, like it said, they saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they just chose the ones they wanted and had offspring with them. And I don't, maybe it's debated. I don't know if that video you mentioned addresses it, but there's a talk in, um, in one of the verses in Jude about the sons of God or something like that. Not, uh, what was it? That the angels who left their place. Yeah. They, they got, they got out of line. They got real out of line. Uh, and so it could be alluding to to that from Genesis. The one pushback to that view that I've heard was that in the New Testament, when we're talking about the eternal state, humanity will be not given in marriage like the angels are. Yeah, and a lot of people will give that objection. And my objection to that would be that angels apparently can take on corporeal form and you can't tell a difference. So when the... The men come to Abraham, what is that, in chapter 15, right? They eat, and they apparently swallow and have the food inside of them. And when they go on to Lot, or maybe this is chapter 17, when these men leave Abraham and then they go on to Lot, well, the men of the city want to relate to them in a similar way, and it seemed like it would have been possible. So I, I don't think that we can say because of this obscure line about being in heaven, being as the angels, that we we can rule this out. Yeah, and I would say being that they were, well, if we're going with the assumption, however, that they were fallen angels or something of that sort, I don't think they're playing by the rules anyways. Maybe the actual angels that didn't fall or whatever, you know, I, I think maybe that would apply to them, not the, the rogue breaking the rules angels. 
yeah, if this is if these are angels, if that's what's in view, clearly they're not honoring God's right. plan for them or humanity. That brings us to the flood narrative, Genesis six through through eight. Um, the end of chapter eight, we've got God's covenant with Noah. How is this incident here, God talking to Noah, important to the story of redemption? In brief, it shows God's commitment to save his people. It shows God's commitment to his original creation purposes. And we see coming together salvation and judgment. And this, of course, is a terrible, difficult thing to imagine, where, as some people have said, God turned the world into a graveyard. There are many, many individuals who die And it seems like God is not going to be faithful to his creation, but he shows faithfulness and steadfast love to Noah and his family. And I think to to individuals who still weren't worshiping him, I think later on when in chapter nine, where Noah talks about his sons and he only references Shem as the one who worships God, right? Yahweh, the God of Shem. Well, it seems that the, the other sons perhaps did not worship the Lord, Um, We don't know that, but only one is connected to the Lord there. And we see God's mercy even to those people. Only Noah is described as righteous. Um, So we look at this, and I think salvation and judgment come together, and this idea is picked up throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, But it it certainly moves the redemptive story forward. And in the end, we see that even the wiping out of the most wicked of the people doesn't wipe out wickedness. Uh, the human heart remains wicked. So God would need to not just preserve his people, but redeem them. Moving through the book of Genesis to chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel and the arrogance of those who wanted to build it to make a name for themselves. Chapter 12, we see the call of Abraham. He was living in Ur, and God calls him out of the blue, seemingly. Yeah, it's like God is starting all over again where you had Adam, and then Cain, and then Noah. Now you have Abraham. And we learn in Joshua and Nehemiah that Abraham was a pagan at the time. His his family probably worshipped the moon or some other god, but they, they were not worshipers of Yahweh. But God took the initiative and called Abraham to himself, and I think that's remarkable and sometimes overlooked. This also begins the next really important phase of redemptive history. So if the creation covenant started it all, and then the Noahic covenant preserved humanity, well, this is perhaps the first of what we might call the redemptive covenants, where God seeks people who will worship his name and walk before him and be blameless. That's a call to Abraham and to his offspring. And it seems like it's through Abraham that the seed of the woman, so Abraham's a descendant of Shem, And the seed of the woman is being preserved through this family line. And we start to think here ultimately that it will be through the line of Abraham that the original Genesis 3.15 promise will come to fruition. Uh, We quickly learn that Abraham is going to have an offspring, multiple offspring, but one particular son. Um, even though he, they're old and his wife has not had any children, and it seems that this son is is that promised one, the hope of the one who would crush the seed of the serpent. Okay, and then for the first time here, firstly, we see Abraham struggling to properly identify his wife 
um, this is one of the first times where he's like, hey, this is my sister. Because well, he's fearful I mean, that later. We'll that, that the technicality, which is interesting also. But that's like a distinct lack of faith in God right there. Oh, I'm afraid they're going to see you're beautiful and they'll kill me. Yeah, at least it seems to be negative. And I think we can say that Abraham is acting without faith. Um, whether or not this custom was practiced in the, in the ancient Near East, I think it probably was. Uh, but certainly he was afraid for his own life, perhaps. Uh, but more than that, if we're thinking that God has promised this offspring to Abraham, he's placing his wife, the one through whom the offspring would come, in the bedchambers of another man. And he, it seems like the seed of the woman is being threatened here. The security of that line is being threatened. Um, so you bring these things together, and it seems like a tragic error. There starts to be this cycle where God's people are taken captive in Egypt, and then God puts plagues on these individuals and sets his people free, and they leave bearing many, many gifts and possessions. And that's exactly what happens here. So we'll see this happen again, of course, most climactically with Israel when they leave Egypt. But I think we start to see that God will continue to preserve his people even when they're faithless. I find it interesting, um, Abraham's deception to the Pharaoh. I mean, the Pharaoh didn't know. Like, you know, he was innocent for all intents and purposes, but then severe plagues came on him because of Abraham's lack of faith and deception. And just, I just found that interesting how that lies and deception, like it, it affects other people really negatively. And this is kind of a picture of that. It's like you hurt innocent people when you practice that kind of deception or lies and, you know, in any way that you do it. In chapter 15, we see Abram being nervous about God fulfilling his promise. And we see God reiterating the promise of making him a great nation and his offspring will be the number of the stars. And it's interesting, we see here that he believed God's word and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yeah, and I I believe this is only the second time a person is identified as righteous, correct? Noah is identified as righteous in chapter 6, and now Abraham, on account of his faith, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Uh, so this is this is very significant, and I think it's a it's very encouraging for us because we can look at Abraham, who God called, even though this guy was worshiping false gods, even though this guy has already acted without faith and without truth. This guy has failed and sinned. God has preserved him, and God is now responding to his faith and crediting it to him as righteousness. And it's a call to faith that's picked up throughout the scriptures, particularly in Romans and in James. Yeah, that is encouraging because as I was reading through it, kind of both Abraham and Sarah, kind of overall, I was like, they're not, at least early on, they're not that likable <laughs> to me. And it's, they're not people where it's like, oh, they were these, they were such great people. Like, I want to aspire to be like them. It's like, yeah. They weren't really that likable. They made some dumb mistakes, but then it's really relatable because I'm like, well, I'm I make really dumb mistakes too, and I can still be, you know, forgiven, and my faith can still, you know, faith and repentance can still make me in right standing with God, just like it did with them. So like, it's encouraging, but it's like, you know, they're not, they're not that, you know, they're not that great of people. They come across as very normal, flawed people. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make, and it changes the way that we read Genesis. 
because we're not going to read it trying to identify who the human hero of the story is and how we can be exactly like Abraham or anybody else for that matter. But instead, we start to read it to detect God's faithfulness to sinners over and over again. So that verse, Genesis 15, 6, concludes the Genesis portion of the reading. And we're going to transition to Matthew. Now, should we tell people that every episode will not be this long and that it's just because we covered the first like major three covenants in the Bible? Yes. Not every episode will be this long. We do have a lot of ground to cover today. So we do want to get to Matthew. The New Testament reading is Matthew 1, 1 through Matthew 6, 4. And we see the beginning of Matthew start out with the genealogy. We see close ties to the Old Testament with Jesus's genealogy being traced back to Abraham. And it was this family line that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we're going to see in Matthew how that is possible. We're introduced to the seed of the woman who crushes the seed of the serpent, like we talked about earlier. And from what I read, Matthew's first words in Greek are literally a book of Genesis, a new beginning for humanity here in his record of Jesus's birth. We contrast it with Luke, who doesn't have Jesus's genealogy until chapter three, and then he has it in reverse order, starting with Jesus and working backward. And he goes beyond Abraham. Matthew breaks it up differently and starts with Abraham and works his way down. And he has this broken up very intentionally in, into three sets, right? So you have from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus. And you have 14 generations according to the layout of this genealogy. And probably not everything is included here. This isn't a scientifically precise lineage um, being laid out here, but it's tracing it. And it's called a gematria, so where you put the Hebrew three letters for David together. Um, and if you're numbering the alphabet, it's four and six and four, and you put those together and you, it comes out to 14. And so this has been, it's a work of literary art to put it together the way that it's been done here. Uh, but beyond that, it's making the point that Jesus is the greater son of Abraham, the greater son of David. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream in chapter one. Chapter 2, this happens two more times, and I think that would be an experience. The angel of the Lord coming to you in a dream, giving you a message, giving you instruction. Mm -hmm. Um, We see the flight to Egypt to protect Jesus and to preserve him. And then in chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist. The one thing that stood out to me was in verse 7. You know, we see that identification with the seed of the, the serpent. Pharisees and Sadducees are, are called a brood of vipers, clearly identified as an enemy of, or at least in opposition of God's plan of redemption here. I have a question about the baptism of Jesus. What was the significance of Jesus' baptism? Yeah, I mean, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, is what Matthew records in verse 15. And it is a little bit complicated on knowing how to understand these things, uh, but Jesus's baptism there was not of the same sort as our baptism, because I, I think, anyway, that John's baptism is called a baptism for repentance, and it doesn't seem to be tied to the new covenant people of God um, that we connect baptism with. So I think something different is going on there. There's a different purpose of that baptism, But the result of the baptism 
is that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. Uh, so we have to look beyond that initial question of why did Jesus need to be baptized in that enigmatic response so that all righteousness will be revealed or fulfilled, and, and then look to what happens next, which is as he um, comes up from the water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So I think there we clearly have the recognition that this it, this human, from all appearances, is the true Son of God. And I think beyond that, there's imagery here of the dove descending that perhaps can be connected to some Roman, Greco-Roman ideas about a bird descending on the next king and these sorts of things. So there's background and imagery there that Matthew might be drawing on that goes even beyond some of these things. Matthew 4, we see the temptation of Jesus by the devil. Certainly an interesting passage. One thing that I noticed was maybe a, a parallel or a correlation at least with the Israelites in the wilderness where they were tempted with hunger, and they responded against God's commands and sinned and were punished for it. And we see Jesus in the wilderness being tempted and overcoming sin. And I think this situation here really is the beginning of of Satan's demise, really. Yeah, I think this is an important thing to know, because if you follow those quotes that Jesus gives from Deuteronomy back, you do see that Israel failed where Jesus succeeds in a sense here. They failed in the temptation, and Jesus doesn't fail. Um, So you start to see Jesus pictured as the new and better Israel, the true Israel, if you will. And if you go back and read Exodus, Israel is identified as God's firstborn son. Well, now here in Matthew 3, you have Jesus identified as God's son. And then he goes into these situations where he is tempted directly by the devil in the wilderness, perhaps paralleling Israel's experience in the wilderness. And um, he he does not he does not succumb to the temptation, even when the serpent, we might say that even when Satan, the tempter, quotes scripture to him, Jesus responds, and he responds in faithfulness to God. Next, we see Jesus beginning his ministry and calls the first disciples um, and starts ministering to the people around him in, in Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We really see these these healings and um, casting out demons and preaching as bringing in the kingdom, which leads to the Sermon on the Mount, which you could say was is just a summary of the promises and commands of of Jesus' kingdom with with higher demands than even what the Pharisees would follow and had had been teaching. Yeah, I think it's significant. Jesus begins to preach after his temptation to repent because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And then he goes all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then he essentially is reversing the curse of death, right? Healing every disease and sickness among the people. Um, The demon-possessed, those who have diseases and pains, come to them and he heals them. And then he goes up on the mountain. And here he's almost pictured like a new Moses. He's going up on the mountain and giving a law, uh, but he's giving a grace-intensified kind of law that also includes blessing, fulfilling the promises. So saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the humble for they'll inherit the earth. You have this language that probably is hard for us to know exactly 
how we relate to this and when these things come to fruition. And we use the language of the already and not yet. These things are already true in Jesus, but they are not yet here in their fullness. Um, So there is a future-oriented peace. Uh, But then beyond the Beatitudes, he starts to give, as you mentioned already, an intensified law building on, you you know, you've heard, don't murder, but I tell you, even uh, becoming angry with your brother or sister is akin to murder. So it is this paradoxical reality that, that Christ both fulfills the law, he becomes the embodiment of the law, but he intensifies the law in a very different way than the Pharisees and Sadducees do. I think what's significant is as we read on when he finishes teaching, um, the individual's comment that he teaches not like the scribes or Pharisees, but as one who has authority. That's in beyond our reading. That's in chapter 7. And ultimately, I think what's being shown is that Jesus is greater than the law. He, he becomes the law in a sense. And um, so we don't chase after the Pharisees. Legalistic requirements, we might say, though sometimes that's misunderstood, but ultimately we, we take on the commands of Christ. I think that is a good segue to the readings in Psalm. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. This is very reminiscent of Psalm 1, or even Psalms in general. How are the Psalms organized? Is, is there an intention there? Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I've been reading through Jim Hamilton's newest commentary on the Psalms. He has a new two-volume commentary that I think is really interesting in a lot of ways, and he's going to argue there that the the Psalter is organized according to the chronology of David's life. And um, he uses some of the headings in the Psalms to connect it in that way. Um, And so some of these Psalms he'll connect to Absalom, David's son, who's chasing after him. You have that very early on. So you you have some of these things where there are different theories of how these things connect. Other people will suggest that the five books are connected to the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I, I don't know about all those series, and I, I don't have my mind made up on that, but I do think we need to read the Psalter in relationship to itself and the rest of the scriptures. And then uh, both Old Testament and pointing forward to the New Testament, we want to pick up on language like in Psalm 2 of of the anointed one of the Lord who's appointed on Zion, his holy mountain. Uh, Verse 7, I'll declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son, today I have become your father. I think this sort of language was true of David in the Davidic covenant, but is ultimately true of David's greater son, Jesus. Um, But as we read this, I think we want to look at Psalm 1 and 2 as combined psalms that form the introduction to the Psalter. Just about everything else connects back to them in one way or another. But they they both retell the story of David and Israel and point forward to Christ. I think we should read these psalms. We should pray the psalms. We should hear them as sometimes the words of Christ, sometimes words about Christ. Um, I think they give us language to express joy and lament. It gives us a vocabulary and a grammar for speaking about life when things are going well, about life when things get messed up, and then about life when things get back on track again. So the the Psalms give us language to speak and pray and sing, and we should know them well, we should lean into it. And um, unfortunately, I don't know the Psalms as well as I wish I did, and I think that's probably true for most of us. Matthew, any closing thoughts? 
just kind of related maybe loosely to, um, as we talked at the last part of Genesis that we discussed, Abraham and his kind of deception. I just found it interesting. It kind of parallels in Proverbs 1, um, 17 through 19, is useless to spread a net where any bird can see it. Um, but they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. It takes the lives of those who receive it. And just, you know, just the word against, you know, gaining dishonestly or just deceiving people and just how you kind of end up hurting yourself and, and the others who, you know, who, who would receive it. So I just find that interesting. It kind of loosely related to uh, Abraham's mistake. Yeah, and that idea will show up over and over again in the Psalms as well, where David or another author prays that the plans of the wicked would cause themselves to stumble or that they would be wrapped up in their own schemes. They'd be caught in their own plans uh, so that their their sinfulness would rebound upon them and and they would be the ones afflicted by it instead of the righteous. And I think that's a bit of what the author of Proverbs is getting at is in our wickedness, we set plans and we try to succeed in nefarious ways. And ultimately we set a trap for ourselves because like the end of Psalm 1 says that the wicked will not stand. I know that was a lot. Appreciate you guys talking with me about the Bible. Yeah, yeah. it's a good time. Happy New Year, 2022. Yeah, we are in the new year, aren't we? By the time this podcast episode hits, I'm thankful for you guys talking as well. It's always a delight to talk about the Bible, and I hope that this will be helpful for some of our listeners. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.